0: Hello, I'm Ben Hanson-Hicks, and this is the So What Do You Do podcast. Every week we'll be talking to someone in a different industry, finding out what their day-to-day lives are really like, and what tips and advice they have on how to break in or move across into their industries. I hope you enjoy listening. Our guest this week is the political journalist Aubrey Allegretti. Aubrey has covered the 2020 US election from the nerve center of American democracy that is Washington DC, has previously worked in Brussels covering European politics, and can otherwise be normally found in his patch in the Corridors of Power in Westminster, breaking story after story, front page after front page. After university and an NCTJ course, Aubrey started out at the news agency Dodds, then The Times, followed by The Huffington Post, before joining Sky News just a week before the general election of 2017 that stripped Theresa May of her previously sizeable majority. Nothing quite like being thrown in at the deep end. When this podcast was recorded earlier this year, Aubrey was coming to the end of his working career at Sky News, ahead of announcing his move to The Guardian as their newest political journalist. It seems that every time I check The Guardian's front page these days, which, dear listener, is more often than I care to admit, there his name is. So Aubrey, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. Um, So first question, think back to yourself at 16. You're just finishing year 11. And for our listeners outside the UK, um, year 11 is the last year of compulsory education. Did you have a career in mind? Where did you want to end up?
1: Yeah, 16. So I was actually uh, obviously just finishing GCSEs and what I really wanted to do then was acting. Um, So I was actually just in this very weird situation of having left the school I'd been at for a few years because I wanted to move to a different school where I could do both of the subjects that I wanted to do, which was music and drama. So it was that sort of weird age where I was auditioning for things like the National Youth Theatre, and had smashed, you know, my GCSEs for music and drama, not very many other subjects. I'd never studied politics before. I had no intention of studying politics. Um, My A-levels that I went on to do were music, drama, English lit and religious studies. So, you know, not necessarily uh, exactly what you'd expect of political journalists. But yeah, acting was the, the career route I was sort of staring down the path of.
0: That's, that's it's quite a change from acting to, to politics. You went on to study politics at uh, Sussex, didn't you?
1: Yes. Uh,
0: so what happened was I, I
1: went to university and I went to Sussex to study English and drama originally, again, continuing this sort of theme. And then I got to the end of my first year and I went to a panel event on the Leveson Inquiry which was uh, something going on about sort of eight, nine, ten years ago, looking into the relationships between the press, the politicians and police, sort of big expose of how sort of too closely linked everything was. Um, And that got me really, really interested in politics and journalism and the sort of relationship between the two. And also sort of by complete coincidence, I had also signed up to become a news editor for my student paper, which is called The Badger, at roughly the same time. So I was switching my degree to politics and then I was becoming a news editor for my student paper and the two just kind of seemed to fall together quite well.
0: And do you think you're, um, looking back at it now, having switched, switched to politics, um, do you think your degree helped you navigate the sort of inner workings of Westminster now as, a, as you are a political journalist these days?
1: It probably did. I have to say, it was very, very weird starting a politics degree in second year, having never studied politics before. I mean, you're around people who have spent the last year doing it. And, you know, there's all sorts of weird stuff like with that, like you know, they've created their friendships and they've sort of figured out who the worst tutors are that they want to avoid the seminars of next year and things like that. And I was just kind of thrown in the deep end. So uh, it was a, a information overload those two years. I really had to sort of work at it. And I wouldn't say that it's, you know, there's not stuff that necessarily I feel like I draw upon now that I remember specifically learning in a classroom or reading in a textbook then, uh, with the exception of stuff about the European Union, actually, which ha- was incredibly helpful because. You know, having an academic basis to understand all of the different structures now it actually does really sort of play into some of the stuff that I write day to day. Um, but otherwise, I think it was just good to have a sort of bit of a broader understanding about political systems and how things work. Uh, and I remember in both this job and in my previous job, I went to several lecturers who had taught me politics to ask them questions and for comment in articles about um, stories that their sort of subject field was related to.
0: So even even though you, you were just saying about um, how learning learning about the EU structures in place is was has been really beneficial for you um, as a as a journalist, would you would you recommend studying politics as a good grounding for future political journalists?
1: I would not recommend it, to be honest. I mean, it absolutely can't hurt. I think there's probably other courses. PPE is a very popular one in Westminster, you know, lots of MPs have got that. So, if politics is kind of what you're about, then there are probably kind of other courses that are maybe slightly better suited. But it was right for me, um, and it just had a sort of broad enough approach that for somebody who was kind of just coming into the subject field, it was a bit more accessible than some of the sort of more niche, you know, uh, subjects.
0: And after graduating um, with your BA in politics, you then went on to complete the NCTJ uh, Diploma in Journalism. And for those who don't know what NCTJ is, it's the National Council for the Training of Journalists. Do you think it's a good idea to get the, that diploma under your belt while you're starting out if, you, if you're not doing journalism on a university course like at City, for example?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's very helpful. I mean, these days... You know, local paper sort of traditional routes uh, exist less. Um, You can sort of still get paid to go into a newspaper, like a local newspaper, and get paid to do your NCTJ through them. Admittedly, the salary you're on is probably going to be a fair bit lower. Um, But in my case, I just chose to go to like an education provider in the same city as my university was based in Brighton. And the thing I liked about it most was it was three months, so incredibly short. From September to December, really intense, nine to five, you know, Monday to Friday. And then basically it was all over by January. I had my certificate then. And the main reason for doing that, rather than a master's degree, was that because the general election was coming up in 2015, it was in May. And so I wanted to be graduated and looking for jobs in the run up to it because I thought, if there are jobs in the run-up to the general election, they're going to be, you know, before, not after. So if I did a university course, I probably wouldn't graduate until literally the following January. I wouldn't even complete the course until the summer, by which point I assumed it would be too late. Of course, politics then sort of went on on fire for several years. So actually... Even if I tried to get into the industry a few months later, I probably would have. But that was my motivation personally.
0: Yeah, it sort of has been, has been on fire and sort of burning ever since really, hasn't it? Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> Journalism has a reputation of being slightly an old, old boys club with positions of power in the newsroom being filled by white men from top universities and private schools. Do you think this is still true today? Or is that description of the industry, in the UK at least, uh, a bit outdated?
1: across the industry I think it's definitely still true yeah um all the facts and the surveys that I see about the sort of state of the industry point to that um so you know without sort of attacking one particular organization or anything like that the the structures the systems they they still seem kind of similar there are sort of some improvements but by and large they they seem to preserve and you know particularly when you look at the number of Uh, ethnic minority people in the lobby it's absolutely tiny it's completely unrepresentative Um, so there is a long way to go
0: out of out of everybody in the lobby what is i mean how many people are there from ethnic minorities i'm imagining it to be sort of like 90 high 90s white or low 90s maybe
1: yeah i mean so in the lobby you've probably got about i'd guess i'd say about 250 people and that's including foreign press, and then you know, I couldn't, I don't know every single member of it, but I'd say that I could think of maybe three or four uh, non-white people.
0: Yeah, sort of off side, like off on a tangent, but it's very similar in TV. Like there's, there's always. These um, diversity sort of drives, but it's we always think it's just for almost for show because you inevitably look up at the top of, at the top of productions and the top of um, channels and broadcasters, and it is nearly always white.
1: I mean, it's the, the lobby includes people on TV, like that's including the, the TV political correspondents and stuff like that. Like the one person who sprang to mind was um, Anne Alexander, the sort of political. Uh, Producer for ITV who's amazing and she's been around you know in the industry doing great stuff for I don't know how long but I think it's about 15 years so she's she's sort of seen a lot but you know she she probably came into the industry when there were not very many uh, black and minority ethnic people in those positions and and that's seemingly still the case hasn't changed very quickly
0: Mm. it's interesting it's interesting and I I wonder, yeah I wonder how long it will will take to change um So alongside your um, job at Sky, you're also a trustee of the Student Publication Association. And personal story, we um, were very welcoming to me when I just moved to London and was looking for work in current affairs and journalism. Um, I can remember a Hacks Night Drink, which was like a monthly get together for young journalists. um, And you were really welcoming and really kind. It's just sort of stuck, stuck with me. How important is it for you to help the next generation get into the industry?
1: Massively. Um, You know, I remember people that helped me when I was like really, really desperate. And when I was just starting out, I remember one guy uh, I emailed when I was on work experience, a national newspaper. And I emailed him to say, oh, I'm really interested in politics. So can I just come down to the lobby one day and spend a day with you shadowing you? Because... At the moment, I'm just stuck in this newsroom with, like, 10 other work experience people all fighting for a, you know, crumb. Um, and he was amazing and, like, completely took me under his wing and we spent basically just two days wandering around Westminster drinking and he bought absolutely everything. And he was like, oh, here's what you need to know. Here's who's sleeping with who. And, you know, all the sort of secret codes and stuff like that, like, couldn't have asked for a better induction. So I think I had... A couple of people when I was starting out who were that to me and were really welcoming and kind and just even if they couldn't help me they still kind of gave me confidence um at the time of day or put me in touch with people that could help them so I think it's really important to just kind of pass on whatever you get
0: definitely I completely completely agree um so you're um you're lgbt yourself and why you don't cover lgbt news for sky is having that representation in the industry important to you
1: yeah definitely I mean I think there is pretty good representation it has to be said uh, on screen and off screen in you know amongst political journalists so I've always felt that it's an industry that has pretty good LGBT representation albeit we you know we work in a in a place in Parliament where you know the laws were such that LGBT people sort of weren't allowed to have sex you know, not so long ago, um, you know, and that gay marriage was only uh, legalised less than a decade ago. So it's kind of a weird place to work. But then, you know, Westminster, I think itself, even even during those times, still had quite a high proportion of LGBT people, even if they weren't open. Um, so yeah, representation is absolutely important. That's one of the sort of the areas where actually I feel like LGBT people are fairly well represented.
0: And generally, um, what would you say are the most important qualities a journalist needs to have? What makes somebody really thrive in journalism?
1: I think number one is just be absolutely tenacious and unafraid of yourself, even if you are really fucking afraid. Am I allowed to swear? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I won't make a habit of it. Uh, You know, you, you, you just don't get anywhere unless you absolutely like throw yourself people and persist and ask, and particularly ask awkward questions. So I think having that ability to just be completely fearless, even if you don't want to, is really really good. On the first day that I joined the lobby I remember being really scared but basically just wandering around Parliament trying to like figure out how it works and like where the rooms are so I was like if I ever wanted to go and speak to an MP I should probably know where their office is of course there are 650 bloody MP's offices so that you're never going to remember them all or where they are but I just thought it would be best to sort of acquaint myself with it and so I started walking around some of the buildings and just like knocking on doors and you know walking into MP's offices and being like hello I've just joined the lobby wanted to say hello here's my card Please call me with source quotes and or scoops and stuff like that. And like, I was remember being utterly terrified, but I just basically like, I, I just forced myself to knock. And then I was like, well, you can't get out of this. So you're just going to have to say it. Like, who cares if it's embarrassing? Just do the knock. And then they say, come in. You go, oh, fuck, I can't get out of this now. So I, I'm not somebody who's fearless, but you can force yourself to be fearless in some situations.
0: That's amazing. Just knocking on a door and being like, "Hey, if you've got any juicy, uh, yeah, juicy gossip that needs uh, that need, or, or any any new laws that are coming in, let me know." Here's my card. That's that's amazing. What's what's been your? What would you say has been your biggest failure or blunder at work? Have you sort of missed a, missed a source's call that went to break somewhere else, or what's what's been the biggest failure? Good question. I mean, there's probably so many failures and blunders. It's hard to
1: pick the biggest. But I think two that I was thinking of. That immediately leapt out at me. Uh, one sort of partially prompted by your, you know, your suggestions, uh, I did. I missed the, uh, a, a source is email telling me that they when the meaningful votes were going to happen on Brexit in Parliament, that was like quite a big thing that uh, I could have got about half an hour before everybody else and just missed the call. Um, and the only other thing that sort of stuck with me was. In my last job, I remember writing a story about uh, a Labour MP and having checked on Parliament what their sort of their history was, and I'd seen that they were a member of Corbyn's shadow cabinet for a period of time, and I think I wrote something like, you know, who was sacked by Jeremy Corbyn on and the next date, and then my editor got very upset, rightly so, because actually the MP had resigned and rather than been sacked and obviously that like made a very big difference to that MP because it was about principle and they had resigned from working under Corbyn rather than been sacked by Corbyn for in their view doing anything wrong um, and while that obviously is a, a fairly small mistake in the grand scheme of things and was pretty low down the article I just remember the bollocking from my editor who was like you know you just don't need to publish this stuff if you don't 100% check and now I Particularly with spellings and posts that MPs have held, I check absolutely everything, like double and triple check. So those are the two sort of lessons I learned.
0: Yeah, and going from going from failures to th- achievements, what you, which story are you most? If you think of all your stories off the top of your head, the one that, or the ones that you're most proud of to have written,
1: the U.S. election results were. You know, pretty amazing. Uh, so to be there from the moment the polls closed, then for the sort of four days and all of the stories I was writing where, you know, from a UK audience that sort of didn't have, let's say, the most intricate understanding of how the US electoral system works, this was obviously even a more sort of complicated and convoluted year than usual. So the stories that I was doing between the point when the polls closed and then there was no clear winner on you know election night to the point where the result was announced I was really pleased with just how I think I sort of managed to try and guide people through all that really complicated process whilst keeping the interest high because obviously Sky had invested a lot in sending people out there and having a really big presence and then boom we were hit by the national lockdown announcement in November a few days before and you know actually the interest was tailing off because it was just taking so long I and mean, it was you know supposed to be over pretty quickly so um I think the coverage that I did uh, across that election period was was the stuff I'm proudest of.
0: Nice, and um, I suppose this next question ties in quite nicely with that. Do you think um, does being a journalist, especially in today's world, mean it's I mean it is a twenty four seven job, or can you keep your personal life um, outside of work separate and protected, or does it all sort of bleed bleed into one?
1: Yeah, I'd say when I was in Washington D.C., things were a little bit different. I mean, then. I didn't sleep much and you were going to bed you know you had to sleep like it was it was about 6 days and you you had to sleep you could not not sleep so you just went to bed absolutely dreading that you were going to get woken up by a phone call from your editor saying like it happens be here in 15 minutes but you've already missed the moment like you don't want to be told about on the phone because when it happens, it happens so quickly. From the moment that the first news outlet declared to you know the last was probably like 45 minutes, but most of them literally declare in a period of 90 seconds. As soon as they see the first one go, they they all followed. So that was that was very intense, and that was 24 hours, and there's no way that I either wanted to nor could have, you know, not worked around the clock there filing copy for first thing in the morning so I was filing copy from bed at 1am and that's 6am UK time but I think a bit more generally speaking you know there's absolutely no requirement you know if you're a journalist to work 24 hours a day seven days a week absolutely not I think it's completely up to you depends you know how much you get out of it and what you want to put in some people sort of thrive on that and I kind of feel quite lucky that I've been able to do that when I've wanted to and been able to when my job has been that high priority and then there's times when my job has had less of a high priority because I've had to do other stuff and I can kind of tune out or take a bit of a backseat or, you know, not tune into that 24 hours a day, seven days a week cycle. So there's absolutely no requirement, no necessity for you to work literally all around the clock. But if you want to, you can so long as you're reasonably sensible about it.
0: And um, and what was it, what was it like? Because it, it was CNN who announced first, isn't it, with the 2020 election? I can't remember who it was. I remember NBC announced
1: very quickly as well, although I don't know that they were the first. I can't remember who it was, but I think it was the people that had declared Arizona first. Maybe that's wrong.
0: I swear it was. I was, I was watching CNN at the time, and I think it was Wolf Blitzer who just then said, right, we're projecting it this it's gone over it's gone over the line we we are projecting it and then it seemed I, I can't remember if they were actually the first ones but then it just yeah like you said it just seemed to just everybody was then projecting it
1: i remember hearing a little bit about the decision desks and how there's a like a big sort of chinese wall between you know the editorial news side and the decision desk and the decision desks are like data analysis people and they are not that you know or you know should we call this because X, Y, and Z. You know, they're just like we will tell you when we're ready, and then we will call it, and then we will tell you, and you can go and report it. But like, it is a very separate um, entity.
0: Well, they've been they've been burned in the past, haven't they, with the with the Bush Gore election, and it, they just it, it has to be completely rock solid projection, otherwise.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's you know they carry so much weight, the the media, uh, and it's sort of calling the election for one person or the other. And, you know, it's not just US media, like you see the US media going down one path, every single of them, you know, news organisation is is going to follow. So it completely just sets the the, the international agenda with that decision.
0: Um, and so Washington is, Washington, and the US selection aside, what are the aspects of the job that you, you enjoy the most?
1: I think definitely sort of being in the know. I don't know why, but I absolutely love... The feeling of knowing something, the gravity of it before you press publish on a story or release what you know to the world, like sitting on the lobby briefings where the details of big things like, say, the November national lockdown, I was like on the phone in the airport listening to them being like... This isn't reportable for two or three hours, but this is so you can all get your copy ready. And so, if the prime minister doesn't say explicitly X, then you know that you know. For example, this specific rule on this specific case will apply. So you've got that sort of background briefing. So absolutely love that. Um, I think feeling that you can give people a sort of a good, balanced sense of the news as well, so you can sort of distill what the story is in your own mind and the arguments and make sure that it's being presented in the proper way rather than any kind of spin because i like to think of myself as a, as a relatively sort of balanced journalist so i sort of i really enjoy that aspect of just presenting stuff in a, in a fairly balanced way
0: and on the on the flip side what are the things you really hate about being a journalist so funnily enough this was easier to, to think about an answer to actually than
1: previous question because there are so many great things about being a journalist but the, the things that I could think about the bad parts of particularly my job I think the thing that I found hardest is the sort of false relationships that you sometimes have to cultivate with people where there is sometimes a sort of weird blurry distinction in relationships and like how much they're sort of acquaintances friends contacts people that you could very happily write a story about, you know, like a negative story about, and they wouldn't care versus those who would, and they'd come after you or, you know, that that sort of false relationships and the kind of like everyone's sort of smiley, smiley, happy, happy talks to you. And then suddenly they move into another position and that whole relationship changes. There's, there can be not very much authenticity. And I'm not really talking about politicians, I think politicians are slightly different, but it's the the other people that work around Westminster that can sometimes be a little bit of sort of people being a bit two-faced. And I think the other thing is it's it's so exhausting, kind of constantly like clocking in with sources. I mean, it's it's kind of the the backbone of the job, but it takes so much energy. Can be you know very expensive as well. If you uh, if you want to check up with somebody for a coffee or a drink like that, takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. So being prepared to sort of to do that, maybe to you ideally want to sort of cultivate your sources, you know, not leave them for long enough that you have to kind of keep going back and sort of reinvesting that energy from the start to build the trust back up. That's what I find sort of most like tiresome about the job that you really have to kind of keep going back. You know, inevitably, there'll be people you haven't spoken to for weeks or months or even years and suddenly you need them again and you kind of have to go in softly, softly. So that can be quite frustrating when you just kind of you just want to shake them and go, look, I just want this answer. I just want this piece of information that I know you're reluctant to give me. You have to kind of play it softly, softly.
0: Without um, without naming names, is is that is that sort of um, that relationship almost changing by with a flick of a switch? Does has that does that have, has that happened a lot to you personally, or is that just something that generally happens with people moving from pool to pool and office to sort of new job?
1: I think a bit of both, um, but you know, it's it's definitely just true that re- relationships are just very difficult to define. And you know it's it's a very fine line between you know getting on well with somebody and getting them to trust you versus you know when does that relationship become too too friendly and then you have to go like actually if I had to write a negative story about you this would be much harder so I need to kind of check in and just sort of redress the balance a little bit mm-hmm. that's the that's the most difficult part
0: um, and. With the never-ending nature of journalism, especially, especially politi- political journalism, it's famously very unforgiving. Have you ever felt like just stressed to the point of burnout? And if so, what, what would be your, your ways of coping, would you, would you say?
1: I've definitely felt sort of complete burnout before. And uh, it's absolutely not a secret. And I'm absolutely sort of open and happy to talk about it. But there was a period where I was off work. I was signed off not fit to work for about three months i think it was december 2016 to sort of february 2017 i think that's right um and that was a sort of combination of things partly personal partly professional but yeah that felt a lot like burnout was a lot of anxiety i think that was probably the overriding feeling um what helped most some meds uh probably quite a lot of exercise. I'm not a massive exerciser, but at least just like, I found it quite useful going to the gym to like get all my anger out. Um, And I also moved jobs and that helped a lot. Um, But I think general tips, which is probably more what people are kind of thinking about rather than my life story is, uh, you know, making sure that you turn off from the news I think accepting that you can't break every single story and accepting that you you can't be around for every big moment. Like nobody is and nobody can be, but that's quite a big thing to accept and turn off, especially if you've been there for ages. Like I've, I've not taken really much holiday for the last two years, maybe more sort of one year, but just because it's been so intense with Brexit and the election, we literally never knew what was coming the following day, the following week, the following month. It was impossible to plan least of all holidays rather than just kind of social events and things like that. So accept that, book your time off, everyone needs time off, you are entitled to time off unless you're a freelancer, in which case obviously you kind of are a bit more in control of your how much time you spend on and off. But, you know, if you've got it, take it and, and use it
0: it's, it, is, it is interesting because you can't you can't be around for absolutely everything and yeah like you said you, nobody nobody can and nobody has in in the history of journalism like there's always going to be things that are missed or
1: exactly it's kind of like
0: you know election
1: night everybody wants to be around for you know the sort of evening of the exit poll all the way through the whole night into the next morning and then you know say in the case of the 2017 election which obviously the next morning turned out to be massive the 2019 election everything was pretty done and dusted we, we kind of knew exactly where we were by then so this the story kind of ended pretty quickly uh, there weren't so many question marks but you know in 2017 like you could have wanted to be there at every stage and at some point you've just got to sleep you've got to let somebody else take over while you're not there you know that's how it well, that's what it's like you know for 2 years basically you just can't go literally constantly uh, so you have to you have to take a break
0: yeah i mean i, I for one am very, i'm very am grateful that the, the sort of politics in the us is is hopefully just going to bubble down and just simmer down instead of being it's almost like every tweet that came out of donald trump's account was just another like a new policy direction or a new um very long-standing global relationship just sort of thrown onto the fire or just thrown out the window and it was that was that was a ride not even as a journalist might like working day-to-day in it but that was just a ride for me as a, as a person I can't imagine what it was like for a for a political journalists in the especially in the U.S. just having to cover it day in day out
1: yeah, I remember the press secretary and I think, her first kind of press conference from the White House briefing room was like, the president will not be, you know, committing news by tweet, like, and we will not be holding these press conferences on Saturdays and Sundays, like, you guys will have days off and you won't get woken at 6am in the morning because the president's tweeted something, you know, absolutely bombshell worthy uh, so there are a lot of people probably covering the Biden administration who are immensely grateful uh, because you know their their working life will have returned somewhat to a normality just in terms of kind of hours and things like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't. You can't see the you can you can't see the differences more starkly if you think of Sean Spicer and Jen Psaki, the new um, Biden White House press secretary, just. <laughs> Um, but what do you think every political journalist um, should have ready to go at a moment's notice? I'm thinking sort of power banks, pencils, toothbrush, toothbrush even.
1: So, yeah, in my case, I'm thinking I don't actually have a dictaphone. I lost it. Um, but if you can, a dictaphone and a phone or two phones, I'm lucky. You know, I've got a personal one and a work one. So I'm thinking, you know, there's there were big situations when we were waiting outside uh, committee rooms in Parliament where the ERG, the European Research Group, were having big meetings to discuss how they were going to vote on big Brexit deals and, you know, the, the, the huddles around uh, Steve Baker and the like and Jacob Rees-Mogg, and obviously the scenes now of huddles are very odd, but, you know, but then literally all just used to be crammed in together and so you'd have your, your dictaphone sort of over the group of people and ideally then you've got your phone as well so you can be typing the quotes with one hand, and probably tweeting them because that's the best way to the quickest way to kind of communicate them to everyone you obviously could just send them to your editor or send them to a whatsapp group but you know sometimes tweeting them, which i did sometimes but sometimes tweeting them is just kind of quicker and easier but so if you've got both then you can do both at the same time because as, as i found out before typing when you're recording on your phone it just it screws the recording you can't hear what people are saying so ideally have Two separate devices, one for the note taking and one for the the recording. Um, I was joking that I actually did carry my passports around in the sort of days after the U.S. Capitol riots because I was thinking, what if I got sent back to America? Um, sadly, it didn't happen, but uh, you know, I did keep I did keep my passports around me just in case. Um, and in normal times, in non-pandemic times, I mean, I am usually sort of. Out after work, having drinks with people, you know, meeting contacts and stuff from sort of five six pm until quite late in the evening, later than I'd usually care to admit. So, uh, in the office, I've always got toothbrush, toothpaste, deodorant, and razor, and shaving cream, um, just so I can make myself a little bit more presentable, either at the end of the day or at the start of the next day if I need to, um, and good to have some alcohol on hand as well just in case
0: (laughs) (laughs) nice i'm imagining especially if you if you're working or like if you're um cultivating sources and going for those meetings tesco's tesco meal deals will probably come in handy as well if you just need to like cram in some food in between them yes yeah i've done a lot of (laughs) the cramming of food um, and that's, that, that sort of ties nicely with the next question is because um, it's about shorthand. Is is learning shorthand still essential when you are taking notes, or do most people just rely on um, audio recordings, sort of voice notes on their phones um, these days? I don't think shorthand is essential. Uh, you know, certainly not to my job. There
1: are people for whom their job it is essential. You know, if you are a court reporter, you do need shorthand. But you know, and. I suppose you might not be a court reporter, but you could be asked to go to court and then you really should be able to. You know, nobody wants to turn around to their editor and say, oh, actually, I can't go because I haven't got shorthand, you know. Uh, so being able to do that is still massively beneficial, but is it essential? No.
0: Yeah, because I'm, I'm imagining if you're, if you're a court reporter and you... You the way that you take notes has to be incredibly precise because you any any sort of anything mis, mis, um, misconstrued or miscommunicated can be can potentially be a huge legal battle for the for the or a legal sort of claim for um, the company that you're working for at the time or the sort of publication that you're working for.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and there's probably a lot less you know margin for error as well because shorthand relies on people abbreviating words into outlines. You know, there are lots of uh, outlines. That you could confuse with something else. Um, I'm trying to think of some now, but the only one that came to mind was say, like, blonde and bland. Like, you you just, it would be very easy for you to correctly get the outline right, and then in your reading back of it, actually get the word wrong. So they probably have to be even better, and they probably do full outlines for some words where there's confusion because they don't want to, you know, make any mistakes.
0: Mm. Um Hmm. and you've, you've you've sort of answered this before, but I just wanted to get it in a in like a another 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 way. Um, what do you think makes a good journalist?
1: I think somebody who who has energy, who cares about something. You know, it could be that you care about a particular issue, and so you're only really interested in covering that issue. It could be that you just care about telling people stories, so you're really interested in, in doing that and doing a much more sort of human, featurey, personal based journalism but I think most importantly just having that kind of drive and that eagerness to, to get stuff you like you just don't get anywhere you always have to ask the question just be I think I've realised this with with interviews and stuff like that like you shouldn't be afraid of asking questions and actually sometimes the more directly you ask them the better sometimes I'm aware that I've sort of pussyfooted around something and go oh well you know what do you think of maybe something like this and is that something you might agree with and they can just sort of wriggle out of it but actually like asking somebody a really direct question it's very hard for them not to answer directly without sounding like they're obfuscating because usually they just sort of come straight back at you so I think having that skill is great and I've only recently sort of learned to use it myself uh i'm not pretending that i'm you know great with interviews all the time but it's just something i learned
0: yeah and if you could if you could just distill all the advice um that you've given in the last nearly nearly an hour for somebody thinking journalism might be for them into a sentence or two what what do you think it what what do you think it would be i think just be
1: completely open-eyed about the good and the bad aspects so be aware of what it's going to entail if you can have a view about what type of journalism you want to do and just be ready to kind of give everything to fight for it and to achieve it.
0: Brilliant. Thanks a lot for being with us, Aubrey. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. I hope you enjoyed that interview with political journalist Aubrey Allegretti. If you'd like to hear more episodes from this series, search for us on Apple or Spotify. Next week’s guest is wildlife cinematographer Ollie Jelly. So what do you do is an ampersand speech production?